Welcome to The Pen and the Odd. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Bahalotacha. Leadership is more than just slogans. Have you ever been elected, like when you were in, in school, did you ever get elected to office? Were you like president of your class or on student council or anything like that? Yeah, I ran for student council. My slogan was, I like Eig. And uh, I had buttons and everything, and I I finished third, so I was the alternate um, student council member. I, I I was never in a in a position of leadership, fortunately for my school, I think. Uh, possibly, but you know, I think your first mistake was uh, assuming that your classmates knew enough about American history that that was uh, Eisenhower's uh, campaign slogan. <laughs> Yeah, I also put up a poster that said, I'll make the trains run on time, and that didn't work either. Wow. Yeah. I'm surprised <laughs> I didn't call you El Duce uh, up there. <laughs> In reference to Mussolini, I'm, I'm, I'm it was shocked. a bad campaign. I, I admit that now. <laughs> I see my error. I can't, I can't imagine how you lost. It's, it's hard to even conceive how, how students just, just didn't, just didn't uh, gravitate towards those slogans. Well, I got to say that you're not the first person in Jewish history to be challenged by leadership issues. And even when when they are chosen, it's still challenging. That's at the heart of the portion of Balotcha. And Moses is really kind of suffering with his people. This, this portion is sort of a long complaint. It's a list of complaints that begins with the people and their desire to have something on the menu besides manna. But it leads to the very inner circle of the Israelite population with Moses's brother Aaron and his sister Miriam turning on him and criticizing him. And so this is a very, very tough portion for Moses where he actually says to God, why are you doing this to me? Why am I burdened with this people? I didn't give birth to them. I don't really feel like holding them to my breast where I have to sort of suckle them. I'm sick of it. And uh, if they want to go back to Egypt because they like the menu better there, go for it. But it is the issue of leadership in its most basic form. Not only the challenge of leading and dealing with people who can be very trying, but beyond that, it's also about sharing leadership as well. Yeah, what's so interesting to me here is that um, Moses, like like so many leaders, is not um, being groomed for this. He doesn't grow up running for student council of his uh, of his high school, hoping that someday he'll be an elected leader. He's thrust into this, and and that's true for you know Martin Luther King, with whom I've been obsessed for the past you know five years, did not set out to do this, and, and suddenly finds himself thrust into this position, and and it's very difficult because there's this expectations, there's jealousy, uh, there's controversy, and. You know, you're being thrust by history into something that's clearly important that you never could have dreamed of and that you have to either accept this mantle or, or refuse it. Um, but if you accept it, you're not automatically um, golden and not everybody is, is prepared to be uh, led by you. And, you know, you've got to suddenly wrestle with things that you never dreamed of. To add to it, and I think King and Moses have something in common because they're both charismatic leaders. Who's going to take Moses's place? Who's going to be the one to go forward when Moses, you know, has already gone to Pharaoh. Moses has this relationship with God. 
Well, King is the most charismatic of leaders, the most gifted of speakers. So on the one hand, it's very flattering to be that leader. On the other hand, it's exhausting. Right. And he's not perfectly qualified for this job. He doesn't have any management background. He doesn't really know how to um, organize. So can he adapt? Can he bring in people who uh, help compensate for his weaknesses? Or is he going to sort of uh, burn out in this job because one person can't do all those things? Well, do I have to read the book to find out the answer or what? Yes, you do. Yes. Okay, well, then now we settle that because <laughs> so we'll turn back to Moses. <laughs> Moses is, Moses is, uh, is, is really uh, so upset by his situation and so tired of it that basically he says to God, if this is really what you wanted, why don't you just kill me now? I don't want to do this anymore. And God responds in two ways. God, first of all, says, I'm going to give these people their meat if they want it, and I'm going to give them so much of it, basically, and this is how the Torah says it, it's going to be coming out of their nostrils. But the bottom line is they'll get the meat, but there is something underlying this, which is they're in this liminal space. They're between Egypt and the promised land. But they also know that when they go to the promised land, and remember, this is how the book of Numbers begins, they're taking a military census. This is very real. They're going to have to go and fight. This was a slave people just uh, some months back, and now they're being called upon to basically embrace their own destiny by fighting for it. I think they're scared. And Moses doesn't have the patience, or he does, he's just tired of them, but he doesn't really look at the underlying problem, right? It's not meat that that's the issue. It's the whole enterprise that they're questioning, because they're feeling very much like they are in a bind. And remember, the portion before this, they found out that they're, they're going to be wandering in the desert for an additional 38 years. So they're down to begin with. But Moses doesn't have any patience, and they're angry at each other. And God's response isn't just to provide meat, but God's response is also to expand leadership. Take 70 elders, and I'm gonna, you're going to share leadership with them. So God expands the leadership. And just as you said earlier about Dr. King, you can't do it alone. And so it's a really interesting lesson about what it takes to really be a leader. It's not just making the decisions. It's also about sharing leadership. No, it's really interesting. And it sounds like, um, you know, it's not a question of faith in God. And, and that's, uh, it's really just a question of, of leadership and helping uh, the community to, to rally here. And that's what's so interesting. King faced a similar moment, actually, where, you know, his house had been bombed. Um, the, 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 the Klan was threatening to kill him and his family. His phone would ring. 10, 20 times a night as they, just to try to uh, harass him. You know, the uh, people would call his home just to deprive him of sleep. And, um, you know, one night he said he couldn't sleep and he went into the kitchen and made coffee. And um, that's when he heard the voice of God. He said it was the first time in his life. The rationality left me and out of nowhere, I heard a voice saying to me, stand up for the truth, stand up for righteousness. And his interpretation of that was that the people were engaged in something important that, that it wasn't hearing this voice reaffirmed his faith in God, but reaffirmed his commitment that they would, that he was engaged in something important here and that God wanted him to lead the people, you know, segregation was, was dying and, and his responsibility was to see that through. And 
course, he, he wasn't doing it alone. And he and he recognized that the Montgomery bus boycott was, you know, lasted a year. And every day, the entire population virtually of, of black people in Montgomery, you know, rallied behind him and stayed off those buses and walked to work and, um, you know, walked to the grocery store, uh, organized carpools. It, you know, it was it required a community effort to to answer that that call that voice that he heard from God. But he also had remarkable leaders with him, people like Ralph Abernathy and others who were very adept, who were charismatic in their own way, but they were also excellent leaders. So so King wasn't doing it by himself. No, that's really important to remember that, um, you know, there was a presence in in Montgomery before King got there, uh, you know, an, organi- an organized movement led by people like Edie Nixon and, and even Rosa Parks, who was very active before she ever sat down on that bus. She was very active in the NAACP. And King was chosen to lead because he was new, because he was young, because he was a brilliant speaker, but he was not necessarily the, um, you know, the on paper, the best qualified. And, and in, in some ways they wanted him because he was new, because nobody had any grudges with him yet. Uh-huh. So he had no history. Exactly. Right? It's so, that's so interesting. But it was that voice, you know, it was his voice that really rallied people because you start to see very quickly people saying that they start calling him Alabama's Moses. Like e- even before he's internationally famous, the comparison is there. And the, the black press in particular sees that this is somebody who has that you know, prophet-like voice, right? But but King did have the um, presence of mind to share power, and I think that's vital for any yep. for any great leader. And by the way, what happens with Moses is that God says, you know, gather seventy elders so you can share power with them. So they go to the tent of meeting, and God actually kind of descends, and they have this remarkable spiritual experience where God sort of enters them and they become prophets, right? So that they, they're hearing or they're experiencing God. It's hard to know what exactly what happens, but they're speaking in tongues. They're having this ecstatic moment. And two of these elders, Eldad and Medad, begun running through the camp and they're prophesying. They're expressing this kind of religious moment. And Joshua, who is kind of Moses's right-hand man, but he's also sort of, his keeper and minder and protector is very concerned about Moses's role as leader. And he says, what do you want me to do about this? And Moses responds, well, he says, would that all God's people be prophets? In other words, the more the merrier. I, we need more and more people who are inspired and who are going to be part, take on leadership roles if we're really going to do this and go forward. And I think this story in some ways is going to kind of pave the way for the next generation who are actually going to enter the land. But Moses's leadership challenges are are significant, and they're going to ultimately be his downfall. But uh, this is a great story about about what leadership is about. And I think it's a fascinating um, challenge. I, I ever since losing my council election, I have not been thrust into a position of leadership. But you can relate to this as somebody who's leading our congregation. It's a fine line because people want a strong leader. They want somebody who can rally the community and and fight for them and, and stand up to the opposition and be a symbol of strength. But you also have to. Um, you know, make people feel like they're being heard and that you're not leading as an authoritarian. It's it's a balancing act. And, you know, I know King struggled with it. And it sounds like, you know, Moses struggled with it, too. 
I'm not obviously going to compare myself to Dr. King or to Moses, but I think any leader has to face the fact that you are much more effective as a leader when you share your leadership. There's a really interesting mystical concept that I actually employ in my own leadership. It's called simsum. It says that when God first created the world, God entered the world, but the world wasn't perfect and God was perfect. So the God, so the world couldn't contain this perfection. So it shattered and God then takes the broken pieces of the world. That's where this idea of tikkun olam comes from, repairing the world. And God puts the world back together again. But this time, God removes God's self from the world. And as human beings perfect the world, God can kind of re-enter it as the world becomes more and more accommodating to God because it's been perfected. This idea is called simsum of removing oneself. And I try to practice this idea of what I call rabbinic simsum, which is that I'm really glad to be there to start something, to create a program. But I've learned over the years to pull back because if I'm in the room, then I'm not sure people are going to be quite as open to engage. Other people may not be willing to pick up the, the, uh, the mantle of leadership. So the best thing for me is going to pull back and then begin to put other people in charge. We've, over the years, Aunt Shaman has been blessed with remarkable, and, and to this day, younger rabbis who have uh, filled those roles magnificently. And I think that that's something that I certainly enjoy, but I also appreciate that the congregation is better when there are strong leaders within the, within the rabbinic crew, within the cantorial crew, across the board. And I think that this is also part of this story, that would that all of God's people be prophets, that's right there. So, but in order for that to happen, Moses can't be at every meeting. Moses isn't going to be the one, he has to pull back. That's somewhat challenging in itself, but I think that's, a, that's part of the art form of leadership is to know when you really need to be at the table and when others can actually not only do it well, but in many cases bring other skill sets where they'll actually do it better than you are or you can. Yeah, that's a great lesson that, you know, the, the, the most forceful, the most important, biggest leaders still need to maintain that humility to know that, uh, you know, they alone um, are, are not the answer that, that you, if you're really leading, you're letting others lead too. Well, the minute you say, I alone can do it, I love just me. <laughs> Sounds familiar. Then you're too, right. Well, but it's, but, you know, President or former President Trump is one that said it, but certainly that was Jimmy Carter's downfall. You know, this is not a new issue. So Jimmy Carter didn't put it in those words, but you follow his presidency and you see that that's exactly what happened. Yeah, right. And uh, there was an article in the paper today that's saying, you know, Americans want a leader who's a showman and, and Biden is not that. He seems happy to uh, disappear into the background and not be, a, you know, the, the voice for every issue. And um, even if he's effective, maybe that's just not what people want these days. You know, we, we seem to be uh, embracing the showman right now, the person who says I alone can fix it. And that's uh, there's some dangers there. There's a longer conversation about what leadership is, but also what does it mean to live in a participatory democracy? And what do we really need as a country and how do we come together? That's where leadership, I think, needs to go in this country. And I hear the fact that, that, that we also like entertainers. 
And what we see, by the way, around the world is because democracy is hard, autocracy becomes a attractive alternative, right? I, I want to, I don't want to worry about it. Let somebody else just tell me what to do. I just want to know, make sure that somebody's like driving the car. There's a downfall and there are real dangers to that as well. Anyway, thanks for the conversation about leadership, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi, and thank you for your leadership.